Okay, here we are. Another Sunday. Last Sunday for Mrs. Miracle. We're going to go a little longer today. Excuse me while I adjust my hearing aids because I'm deaf. We're going to go a little longer this afternoon or this evening because I want to finish the book off so uh, we can get started on other books next week. But uh, for everybody that's been coming to these things, I think I, I really thank you a lot because it's, it means a lot to me to have you all here. Um, again, we're going to finish off Mrs. Miracle according to According to my my my, my ebook and ha, my, my uh, Kindle book, we have about an hour and fifteen minutes left of uh, Mrs. Miracle to read. So we're going to get that going, and the sooner I can do it, you know, the, the sooner I do it, the sooner we can play. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour, maybe more. Uh, I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. Let me make sure we got this turned on. Do it. There we go. I'll be hearing my hearing aid. Um, uh, with 35 strong up and down the state of California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. So we have people all over the place that can help you with any paranormal need that you that you have. And the important thing is, we're a nonprofit. So, in fact, I'm going to do this real quick. Let me run my banner. I usually don't do that, but I don't do anything. And we're a nonprofit. So it doesn't cost you anything to have us come out and check out your house for paranormal needs. Nothing, no, nothing costs, okay? We do this because... That's kind of funky today. Look at that. There we go. Let me over here. There we go. We do this because we we love helping people, and that's why we do it. So anyway, I want to thank everybody again for coming, and uh, I'll give a couple more minutes for people to come in the room because usually everyone's used to a five-minute lead-in, and uh, I'm not doing that. Up oh, there we go. We just got somebody in the room. Hopefully, it's friend or foe. Identify yourself. <laughs> But uh, welcome, and uh, like I said, it's going to be a little bit of a longer read. I'm going to get it going, get this up right now, because we're going to finish off Mrs. Miracle today. My trusty Samsung Galaxy Note. Wish I had a, wish I had a 10-inch or a 12-inch Samsung Galaxy Note. Ah, AT&T, familiar sound. But welcome to the show, and uh, like I said, we're going to be reading Mrs. Miracle and finishing it off today. And this is the last day I'm going to be holidaying in here, so this is the last chance for me to wear my Aloha Santa shirt, at least at least on the air. But again, I want to thank everybody who's been coming every Sunday without fail to hear me read from this great, fantastic book, Mrs. Miracle. And then we'll talk about what we're going to do next week. Okay. So we left off at chapter 25, so we're going to continue. And according to this, we have approximately, I don't know, it told me the other day, 80% of the book read. So we should be just about wrapping here. So without further ado, let's jump right in here. A couple more minutes. Anyway, um, tomorrow, California Haunts Radio, regular schedule, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. We're going to have Rory Schmidt on, who's going to be talking about the history of voodoo in New Orleans. So that should be a pretty interesting show. And uh, it's kind of cool to have a white face. You know, I'm going to try something here real quick. Just bear with me. Now I look spooky. 
I, I looked. I look spooky, huh? No, we don't want to do that. We don't look spooky. Okay, let's go back to this. There. I look washed out. It is spooky, though. You know, next year when I tell Christmas ghost stories, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it without the light on, and just with this thing on. And that's kind of cool. One more minute, we'll get rolling here. But uh, welcome, and uh, again, my name is Charlotte. I'll be your hostess, host for the next hour or so, probably a little more than an hour, so we can finish off with this miracle. <clears throat> but this has been a great book. I love the movies, um, all of the Mrs. Miracle movies. In fact, I think there's new movies out with, with a new actress playing Mrs. Miracle because the woman that was playing Mrs. Miracle passed away, so they had to bring in a new actress. And I have yet to see the the newer movies on Hallmark, but uh, the ones that I did see were really cool, really, 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 really cool. So bear with me here, and uh, we're going to get rolling and see if we can't finish this bad boy off. You can tell I've got my trusty fireplace going behind me. See, I got my fireplace back there. It's going behind me. I kind of hate to take down the Christmas background. I, I love the holidays, and my house is still decorated. My my, my front my, my front is still decorated too. But uh, we gotta shift gears in here. We're all right. Here we go. So without further ado, chapter twenty-five. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Emily. Merkel greeted as a blue-eyed Sharon walked to the kitchen. Sharon smiled back wildly. She hadn't slept well, and from the way Jerry had tossed and turned the night away, she knew she had she knew he hadn't either. When she'd slipped out of bed, she suspected he was awake, but he hadn't spoken, so neither had she. After their frank discussion okay, after their frank discussion about their divorced friends, they hadn't said much of anything to each other. But really, what was there to say? Their conversation had been had been common enough. They'd get along better once they were divorced, Sharon suspected. Just making the decision seemed to have slackened the tension. They'd spent time with the children, attended a movie, and had spoken barely a crossword to one another in days, which she had to admit was something, to record, something of a record of late. It was a sad comment on their life together. Would you like a cup of coffee? Emily asked, and without waiting for a reply, promptly poured her one. She carried it to the table and set it down for her. The children are with their father this morning. She said companionably, I believe they went Christmas shopping. Leave it to a man to put it off until the last minute. She chuckled to herself and returned to the task at hand. The large electric mixer, mixer hung softly in the background, and the intoxicating scent of curry filled the kitchen. What are you making? Emily was a fabulous cook, good enough to open her own restaurant if she wanted. It's a fruit dip, the housekeeper answered absently, reading over the recipe. Delicious with winter fruit pear, apples, and the like. She knocked the lid on the, on the jar of a mango chutney against the edge of the counter to loosen it, then twisted it open with all her might. Here, read over the recipe. You'll see what I mean. It sounds wonderful, Sharon said when she finished reading. If, if you think it sounds good, just wait until you taste it. Holding the mixing bowl in place under her arm, Emily scooped the fruit dip into a plastic container, then sealed it with the lid and placed it in the refrigerator, letting it set overnight just best. Sorry, let it set overnight best, but if you can only chill it a couple of hours, that's fine too. I need to eliminate the walnuts, Sharon said, glancing over the recipe again. Jerry doesn't like them. She stopped, realizing she'd spoken automatically without remembering that she no longer needed to concern herself with Jerry's likes and dislikes. From this Christmas forward, she had only herself to please. The knowledge should have delighted her. A few days ago, it would have. 
instead of depressed her. In her heart of heart, she recognized that the recipe would be tucked away, forgotten in the pages of the cookbook, like good, like a good intention. It would be too much of a hassle to go all the, to go to all that trouble just for one person. It wasn't worth the effort. Something smells good, Jerry said as he walked in the kitchen. I love the sense of Christmas. He poured a cup of coffee for himself, then opened the refrigerator for the milk and spied the large turkey thawing inside. Christmas evokes memories for me, Mrs. Merkel said. They, they must for you, too, after all these years together. The first year Sharon and I were married, she baked the turkey, Jerry said. She'd never done one completely on her own, and we couldn't afford to call. We couldn't afford for her to call her mother long distance and ask questions. It wasn't a turkey, Sharon corrected him, laughing softly. Just a large chicken. But I stuffed it and fretted over it with all the nervousness of a young bride wanting to impress her husband. How'd it turn out? Emily asked. Wonderful, Jerry answered without looking at his wife. One of the best Christmas dinners Sharon ever cooked. Jerry, it was a disaster. Sharon couldn't believe his memory was so short. The bird was as tough as shoe leather, and the dressing was soggy and bland. I kept telling you how sorry I was that I ruined everything, and you insisted on eating it anyway. She loved him for it. Loved him until her heart ached at the memory of it. The dinner was bad? He looked genuinely surprised. That's not the way I remember it. It wasn't much of a Christmas as Christmas as go, Sharon murmured. We had so little. Ah, the good old days. They bring back memories, don't they? True, Jerry added, sitting on the chair next to his wife. As I recall, we couldn't afford a Christmas tree, so Sharon made one by sticking toothpicks into those foam balls till she had a stack of porcupines and then sprayed them all with that snow. That comes out of a can. Then she decorated that with tiny glass balls, all blue. It wasn't that we couldn't afford the tree, Sharon explained. Those were the days before the sheer, before the sheer trees were the fashion. We could have probably picked one up for a buck or two, but there wasn't room in our tiny apartment for anything more than the two of us. Three months later, we made room. Our first, our first Christmas, Sharon. Let's, let's see. Hang on. Oh, it's not turning. Give me a, whoa. Hang on. There we go. Our first Christmas, Sharon was six months pregnant with Clay, and we needed every penny we could save for the baby. Her husband's gaze held hers and softened. Those had been frugal times, but some of the happiest of her life. She wouldn't trade one of those years for all the diamonds in the world. Her mind wandered back to those early days in the one-bedroom apartment. They lived in an old, dilapidated building in San Francisco, away from family and friends for the first time in their lives. Her pregnancy had come as an unexpected surprise. It didn't help matters that her employer wouldn't allow her to work past six months, not even part-time. So their limited budget had been stretched even farther. Somehow they made it, with love and laughter. Their finances might have been tight, but they had held on to each other. It was one of our best Christmases, Jerry used aloud. Yes, Sharon agreed. A hard knot filled her throat, and she feared if she spoke again, Jerry and Emily would hear the tears in her voice. So she stood, mumbled an excuse, and hurried back to the bedroom. She was sitting on the edge of the bed when Jerry came into the room. He didn't say anything as he sat down next to her. The silence between them was long and profound. What went wrong with us, she asked in a whisper. Jerry leaned forward and braced his elbows against his knees. I wish I knew. Silence again as they mulled over the question neither of them could answer. I never suspected we'd end up like this, Jerry murmured at last. Me either, she said sadly, then stood and dressed. Jerry didn't want his divorce any more than she did. But neither wanted to go on living the way they had been. 
their lives had become a constant tug of war, a battle of wills, in which they both become the losers. Their marriage was a lose-lose proposition. The answers were more complicated than the questions. What she needed, Sharon suspected, was a bit of fresh air and some time alone. With that goal in mind, she promptly finished getting ready for the day. I'm going for a walk, she announced, and reached for her jacket. Jeremy looked at her as if seeing an invitation to join her. She didn't offer him one. She needed to mull over her future, what she intended to do with the rest of her life without a husband. When she stepped outside, she found the wind was strong and cold, cutting through her. Aimlessly, she strolled along the sidewalk. She buried her hands in her pockets and bent her head against the force of the weather. Having had no real destination in mind, she was pleased when she happened upon a small park about a mile from Seth's house. A large gust of wind tossed and tumbled multicolored leaves across the lush green grass as Sharon walked across the lawn and sat on a bench next to the merry-go-round as Wink said. All that talk about their first Christmas together had awakened her fears and regrets. She hadn't wanted to think about the past. Moving on with her, with her life should be the utmost in her thoughts. Just doing what needed to be done, purging Jerry from her life once and for all. Progression was what was important. She couldn't allow herself to dwell on all the good times and remember the love they once shared. A love so deep it had defied their circumstances. All the reminiscences Oh, oh, all the reminiscences one of those words wouldn't help that first Christmas the two of them together alone Jerry's weekly paycheck had been a whopping $90 the rent had been $150 a month and that had been the cheapest apartment they could find what there was of their furniture had been a mixture of what their families had given them and the television their pride and joy which Jerry had won the phone, a phone and radio contest they hadn't been able to afford to exchange Christmas presents, not with the baby deal, and the two of them living on one income. Nevertheless, Sharon had bought yarn, and while Jerry was at work, she needed him a sweater. Her neighbor, Mrs. Grayson, had helped her read the patterns. Despite the endless hours of effort she put into the project, one sleeve had turned out longer than the other. The neckline had sagged, and the entire effort had been amateurish at best. No one would have seriously considered wearing that sweater. But Jerry had. He loved her enough to praise her efforts. She remembered when he'd opened the box. From the look of pride and wonder, one might have thought that she'd spun it from pure gold. He'd worn the sweater every night after work for years, and in all that time, he hadn't once noticed a single flaw. She'd made it for him, and that was good enough for him. Sharon's gift to her husband hadn't been the only one under the toothpick tree that Christmas. She'd awoken early Christmas morning to the sound of music and Jerry cooking breakfast, singing at the top of his lungs. It was a wonder their neighbors hadn't complained. Jerry, for all his other talents, was completely lacking in the area of voice. The eggs had been runny and the toast burned, but it might as well have been ambrosia for all the notice she had paid. He'd escorted her to the kitchen and sat her at the card table with the mock Christmas tree in the center. Beneath it, there had been a small red box. She remembered the bow. She remembered the bow was red, the most beautiful red she'd ever seen. Jerry had sat down beside her and, his eyes bright with love, handed her his gift. She'd unwrapped it carefully and found a pearl necklace. One pearl. He'd gone without lunches for two months in order to pay for it and the gold chain. He'd promised that someday he'd buy her an entire strand. Each pearl would be as beautiful and as perfect as she was. He kept his word, too. For the 20th wedding anniversary, he'd given her an 18-inch strand of pearls. She'd worn it a number of times since, 
But that single pearl had been a part of her for years and years, until it had become scratched and flawed and dented, like her marriage. Sharon remembered she cried when she'd opened the necklace. Jerry had kissed the tears away, and then he'd romantically carried her into the bedroom, and they'd made love until they were both exhausted. Now it was over. Whatever they shared, whatever they loved about each other, had left them. It wasn't what she wanted. If she could turn back the clock, she would have given everything she owned to recapture the love. The years had destroyed it, dealing with life's complications, children, the trying teenage years, the challenges of financing three kids in college, all at the same time. Burying a child and rearing two grandchildren for four years. Retirement. Somewhere along the path, they'd fallen into a rut. One so deep they hadn't been able to crawl out of. Eventually, the joy, the adventure, the enthusiasm had gone out of their marriage, out of their lives. The day to day routine had become filled with pettiness and trivial arguments. A duel, a duel of words and deeds. The death knell. Her steps grew sluggish as she walked back to the house. Her thoughts were heavy and full of self-reformations. So many things she would do differently now. Her pride wasn't worth this agony, or, or was it? She thought she knew what she wanted, but now she wasn't so sure. She was confused and unhappy. They were both so stubborn, so obstinate and unreasonable. She was to blame, and then so was Jerry. He hadn't made this easy. She was tired, depressed, and about to make one of the most important decisions of her life. The house was quiet and empty when she let herself inside. Not until she hung up her coat in the entryway closet did she realize she wasn't alone. A faint sound, the television, she surmised, could be heard from the family room off the kitchen. Jerry and his football game, she thought, and amused. She never had understood football or men's fascination with the game. The season seemed to last all year. August to January. Jerry loved to watch the games. College, professional, peewee league. The same with baseball and basketball. For more years than she could count, she'd sat at his side and knitted her skills and improved over time while he relaxed in front of the TV, cheering his favorite team. She hadn't understood the complexities of the game, but had enjoyed just being with Jerry, sharing these quiet moments with the man she loved. I'm back, she called, unexpectedly cheered, knowing Jerry was in the other room. She had some things she wanted to say. Until that moment, she hadn't realized it, but the need to speak to him burned within her. It had all started with Emily's comment about memories. And Sharon soon found herself caught up in the years she shared with Jerry. Is that you, Mrs. Palmer? Emily Merkel called back. Sharon found Seth's housekeeper in the family room, her bare feet propped up against the ottoman. She grinned and wiggled her toes. These dogs are barking, she said. Where's Jerry? You mean to say he didn't meet up with you? No, a small sense of desperation took hold of, desolation took hold of her. Why, that's strange. He left a few minutes after you did. I assumed he thought... I, I, assumed, I assumed... I thought he intended to join you. What do you mean your Aunt Harriet can't play the piano for the Christmas program? It was all Reba could do to... Clench Jane, by, okay, it was all Reba could do not to clench Jane by the collar and demand an explanation. This is some kind of joke, right? Jane retreated one small step. Reba didn't blame her. She could feel the hysteria rising. The Christmas Eve program was scheduled in less than 48 hours. While she was confident that any number of volunteers were qualified to replace Mrs. Foster, 
Jane's aunt was the only one who practiced the routine with the children, the only one who knew the program backward and forward. She's taken a nasty fall, Jane repeated. She has to spend the night in the hospital and have her jaw wired, her arms broken too. Reba didn't mean to be callous about the only woman's injuries, but she was the one responsible for the performance. All week she heard, she heard how much this Christmas pageant meant to the church family. How pleased people were that she'd stepped in and taken over for Millie Waters. How grateful they were. Friends and family were planning on attending people of their, of their face. Oh, okay. Friends and family, I'm sorry, were planning on attending and people of other face. The pressure was on her and the children to give a performance of their lives. And now she was without a pianist, without hope. Reba sank onto her chair and resisted the urge to bury her face in her arms. She didn't know what she was going to do. I realize this isn't the best time to ask, but would you mind terribly if I left a few minutes early? Jane asked. Her words soft and cautious, as if she were tiptoeing across the breast of Father's floor. I'd like to stop off at the hospital and visit my aunt. I know I complain about her a lot. She drives me crazy at times, but she is my aunt and the only living relative on my mother's side of the family. Of course, having Jane leave an hour early wasn't nearly the catastrophe of not having a piano player for the church program. Give her my best when you're there. Tell her not to concern herself about a thing. No need to heap more trouble on a woman's shoulders. She had enough on her mind without having to worry about the Christmas program. Something like this was bound to happen, Reba thought, as Jane silently gathered her things and left the agency. She glanced over her shoulder on her way out the door, and Reba managed a brief smile. Don't worry, Jane said. Everything will turn out the way it's supposed to. Reba didn't believe that for an instant. She was supposed to go through she was supposed to go through this agony. Supposed to conjure up a piano player at the last minute? If she believed that, she'd have to accept that her sister was supposed to have ruined her wedding and her life. This was one of those cliched comments she come to hate. It made no sense. Just remember, God doesn't close the door without opening the window. The door closed and Reba muttered, yeah, right. She closed her eyes and sighed deeply, releasing her pent-up frustration. It never failed. Just when she was beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel, she discovered it was an oncoming train. Just when she was beginning to believe that she found a man who would love and accept her with all her faults and foibles, Seth revealed his true self. He was like all the others, preaching love and forgiveness, telling her how much better it would be if she forgave Vicky. It hurt far more than she cared to admit. She'd been so helpful with Seth, she'd started to believe again and trust. Still, she hadn't said anything yet about ending the relationship. All the emotional strength she'd she possessed would be focused on getting through Christmas and New Year's. Afterward, she'd deal with the situation with Seth, although there really wasn't much to say or do. As far as she was concerned, it was over between them, over before it started. The brief relationship wasn't all that different from the others she'd had the last four years, only this time her heart had gotten involved. She cared about Seth, cared about his children. Working with Judd and Jason, get, getting to know them, love them, would make parting all the more painful. The bell of the door chimed, indicating that she had a customer. She looked up, expecting another last-minute walk-in, desperate for her part the red, part the Red Sea and book Vegas on New Year's. But it was much worse than that. It was her mother. Hello, sweetheart. Joe Maxwell strolled inside, as cheerful as, as a canary. Merry Christmas. 
Merry Christmas, River returned with a decided lack of enthusiasm. Her mother's face fell. What's wrong? Have you got a year? As a matter of fact, I do. She pulled up a chair beside Reba's desk and plunked herself down as if she intended to sit right there until all was right with the world once again. The piano player the piano player fell and broke her arm. No need to mention that her jaw was out of commission. It was her arm that mattered. At her mother's blank look, Reba continued. Christmas program, remember? I'm sure there are other people in the church who are qualified. It's not that simple, Mother. Such matters really were. First off, no one else has practiced with the children or knows the songs. It's more than just pounding on a few numbers on the keyboard. It's knowing who to play. It's knowing when to play, giving the children their cues, and playing the background music. It's everything. Oh dear, you do have a problem, don't you? For the first time in recent memory, her mother wasn't tr trivializing her troubles. Reba was grateful enough to comment. Thanks, Mom. Joan suddenly looked unsure and flustered. Thanks for what? I can't help you. I would if I could, you know, but I don't have any, any musical ability. Why, I don't even know where Mila C is on a piano. Thank you for understanding, Reba explained. Oh, she sounded disappointed. But Reba forgave her for that. Can I help you with something, Mom? She didn't think this was a social call. Her mother smoothed out her skirt, brushing her hand down the length of her thigh. I understand, actually, Doug was the one who brought it up, that you bumped into your sister. Yes, Reba answered shortly. She'd been hoping the conversation wouldn't turn to Vicky, the way it always did when she was with her mother. Just once, she'd like it if they could talk without involving her sister. Just once. It shouldn't be too much to ask. Vicky said you looked well and happy. You know what I look like, Reba returned, unable to disguise her irritation. It was happy. It was the happy part that pleased her. Why don't I believe that? Oh, Reba, don't you know how eager your father and I are to resolve this? All we want, all everyone wants, is for you to be happy. Meeting Seth has been the best thing to happen to you in years, and I won't be seeing him again after, after the holidays. She might as well get that out in the open now. The sadness and regret that filled her mother's eyes were immediate. But why? I thought, we all did. You two are so good together. You don't know that, Reba challenged. You've never even met him. I don't need to. I saw the difference in you. I'm sorry to disappoint you, Reba muttered. Oh, Reba, her mother murmured sadly. There are so many things you don't know. Then tell me, she challenged, waving her arms in the air. She was tired of hearing it, tired of having her mother throw it in her face, as if any excuse she offered would change the way she felt. It involves your sister. Her look was skeptical, as if she expected Reba to stop her. The assumption was a fair one. Her mother had attempted to talk some sense in, into her plenty of times before, and Reba had refused to listen. Doesn't everything? Joan briefly closed her eyes as if praying for patience. Are you going to tell me again how very sorry Vicky is? No, she responded, pressing her lips together. There's no denying Vicky did something foolish. There are a number of other adjectives I'd like to add, but won't. Good, I appreciate that. She paid dearly for her mistake. Reba sighed. If you're going to tell me she suffered enough, I don't want to hear it. Her mother ignored her, ignored the comment, and after ignored the comment, after you found Vicky with John, she came to your father and me and told us what she'd done. She blamed herself, was sick with her gut. Yes, well, it wasn't exactly a picnic for me either. No, but you dealt with it in an adult matter. In the beginning, at any rate, she amended. Reba's head came back with a with surprise. Vicky didn't. 
I don't know what happened that night, but I strongly suspect, as does your father, that John seduced her. There it was again, the willingness to offer excuses for her sister. I know what, what you're thinking, her mother announced stiffly. But we were the ones who dealt with the aftermath of that night, as far as Vicky was concerned. Reba couldn't believe her ears. Her mother made a sound as if canceling the wedding had been some kind of picnic for her. True, she left town almost immediately, but who could blame her? Your sister ended up in the hospital. Her words were low and filled with pain. She attempted suicide the day that, that was supposed to have been your wedding day. Reba's breath jammed in her throat. Vicky had attempted suicide? Why didn't you tell me this before? Only a handful of people knew about it. Vicky made me promise that I'd never tell you, and until now, I kept my word. I wouldn't discuss it now, except that I'm desperate. Your sister isn't the same person she was back then. Not anymore. We all change, Reba said, unwilling to allow this information to influence her attitude. Joe sighed. You can be so stubborn, Reba. I'd like to blame your father for that obstinate streak of yours, but I fear you'd get it from my side of the family as well. She smiled sadly, acknowledging her lame joke, then went on. Vicky was in counseling for a long time afterwards. He refused to forgive her, and she had to learn to deal with that along with everything else. With time, therapy, and a sympathetic counselor, she was able to forgive herself. Shortly afterwards, she met Doug. The silence that followed was unwelcome. Apparently, her mother was looking for her to make some charitable comment, but unfortunately, she was a lot of charity. Okay, you told me, and I've listened, but it changes nothing. The sadness and dejection in her mother's eyes was almost enough to make Reba capitulate. Somehow, I didn't think it would, Joan mumbled. She reached for her purse and stood. Actually, the reason I stopped by was to tell you that your father, Gertie and Bill, and I planned to attend the Christmas Eve program. They want to be able to spend some time with you, no matter how limited. Reba nodded. Terrific. The pressure to put on a memorable pageant has just increased a hundredfold. I hope everything works out for you, sweetheart, Joan paused at the door. And I'm not just talking about the Christmas program. Reba desperately needed someone to play the piano. Someone who knew the routine. Someone who attended the practices and knew the nuances of timing as well as she did. Seth. The instant his name flashed into her mind, Reba knew it was divine inspiration. He'd been to almost every practice. He'd sat in the back of the church at activity room and had even helped out backstage a time or two. More important, he played the piano. He had in some time, she remembered, but he'd been good, he said to himself. Hard pounding, Reba flipped pages of her personal directory until she found the work phone number he'd given her. She punched it out so fast and hard, she bent a nail. Seth Webster. Seth, she breathed. Relieved, he'd answered the phone himself. I need you. Now? I mean, I'm perfectly willing to give you my give you my body, but not sexually. Oh, he pretended to be terribly disappointed. Mrs. Foster, you remember Mrs. Foster, don't you? She fell and broke her arm, and now I need a piano player. Not just anyone, either, but someone who knows the program. Someone who's been, who's been there practice after practice. You. She spoke so fast that the words all ran together. The silence that followed left her feeling as though she were standing on a precipice, ready to tumble over a cliff. Surely there's someone else more qualified, he said finally, breaking the tension. No, there's only you. Her hand squeezed the telephone receiver tightly. You told me you play, remember? I wouldn't ask if this wasn't important. There's no one else who knows the program. 
No one. She felt this hesitation once again. I'm sorry, Reba. I hate to let you down, but I told you before. I gave up playing the piano after Pamela died. Are you saying you won't help me? The delay before his response said it all. That's exactly what I'm saying. Chapter 27. Seth hated to turn Reba down, especially now. He knew he was already in her bad graces following the meeting with her sister. It hadn't taken a crystal ball to see the pain in Vicky's eyes and the anguish in Reba's. She had to force herself to hold on to her grudge. She had to force herself to hold on to her grudge, had to work at, feeling, at feeding her anger towards her sister. Seth had sensed that all oh, it take would be a few words of encouragement for her to give in to what she actually wanted. While his intentions were good, he realized the minute he'd opened his mouth that he traipsed onto treacherous ground. Reba had closed up tighter than a bank vault. Almost immediately, she'd withdrawn into another world, one that excluded him. He debated whether to, st to stop off in her office on the way home and decided against it. To do so would, to, would be to invite the discussion. And as far as he was concerned, the subject was closed. He told Reba early on in the relationship that he'd given up music. He hadn't touched the piano since the day Pamela had died, and he wouldn't. At the time, he'd been so understanding since he was grief. She hadn't lectured or offended him or offered him any bits of well-meaning wisdom, but had silently accepted his decision. She suffered a loss of her own and could empathize until she had a reason to show him the error of his ways. She'd gotten to him, says realized frowning. He found himself wanting to help her and angry that she, that she put him in an impossible situation. A vow was a vow. The music had gone on in his life, and he wasn't going to let Reba talk him into doing something he knew he'd later regret. That's for, all for a silly Christmas program. His heart was heavy as he drove home. He didn't want matters to be like this between them. They were struggling, and this complicated everything. His mind wasn't on the road. And when he pulled into the driveway, the 30-minute drive had completely escaped him. He could remember none of it. Early on, after Pamela's death, it had been like this. He'd find himself at the cemetery and not remember how he got there. It shocked him that this kind of thing would repeat itself at this late date. Carrying his briefcase, he opened the door leading from the garage and the kitchen. Mrs. Merkel was busy with dinner preparations. Her meals were culinary masterpieces. He had little, but he had little appetite this evening. You have company waiting in the study, Mrs. Ma in the study, Mrs. Maxwell, the housekeeper announced, and then lowered her voice. I thought you two could do with a bit of privacy. Seth smoothed the hair away from his brow. I suspect you're right. He wasn't looking forward to a confrontation with Reba, and there was sure to be one. He hated to disappoint her, hated to let her down. Reba was pacing the room and turned to stare at him when he entered. Hello, Reba. Seth. Her eyes held his, and he felt the burden of her frustration, the weight of her disappointment. He longed to help her, but she didn't seem to realize what she was asking. His stomach clenched with dread. He never expected to fall in love again. Finding her was one of the biggest surprises of his life. Love had taken him by storm, and it was all about to be ruined. And he'd have no one to blame but himself. I came because I had to talk to you once more about helping me out. Horizon implored him, and he found it impossible to look away. The urge to take her in his arms and soothe away her worries nearly overwhelmed him, and at the same time he found himself fighting his anger. He'd already told her no, and he resented her pressing the issue. 
This had to do with Pamela and him, not Reba. You don't know what you're asking, he said on the ottoman and buried his hand in his hair, holding holding on. See, hang on one second. I got lost. Okay. Okay. Holding on to his head. Music was something I shared with Pamela. She's gone, Reba reminded him gently, but you're still here. You don't understand. The music didn't go away with Pamela. It did for me. He struggled to keep from shouting. You're using this thing with the piano to hold on to your grief. You've got to let go. If you're ever going to get on with your life, your timing was damn convenient, he noticed. So, so I can play the piano in some church program because you want me to? Isn't that just a tad self-serving? She exhaled sharply and he realized his words had hit their mark. The Christmas program isn't the only reason I'm asking. I don't believe you. All right. All right. I wouldn't have asked if it wasn't for Christmas program, but she stopped abruptly, and he noticed that her hands trembled as she clenched them and raised them to her lips. You're saying that I'm clinging to my grief? Yes. You might take a look in the mirror. You don't have any right to talk. If anyone's clinging to anything, it's you. I saw the look in your sister's eyes the other day, and it was a reflection of what you were feeling. Everything in you longs to make peace with Vicky, but you're clinging to your anger with both hands because heaven help if you ever let go. I don't know what you're talking about, Reva insisted. You don't have a latent stand on, he continued. The truth is, if you settled your differences with your sister, you'd have to take a long, hard look at some of the things in yourself. Like maybe the real reason you agreed to marry John, to marry John in the first place. You told me your sister made a play for him because he was yours, but admit it. Reba, wasn't it more the other way around? That maybe you wanted him because of how your sister felt about him? That was the big attraction, wasn't it? Walking off with something just so your sister couldn't have it. The blood drained from her face, and she nodded her hands in tight fists. For the first time in your life, you had something your sister didn't. Stop it, she shouted, and covered her ears. That's ridiculous. I didn't come here to talk about Vicky. I came to ask for your help at the Christmas program. You have my answer. She stiffened, grabbed her purse, and swung it over her shoulder. You're right. I do. She started towards the door as if she couldn't as if she couldn't escape him fast enough. Then stopped stopped abruptly and glanced over her shoulder. Her eyes were bright with un with unshed tears, and she offered him a sad smile. I apologize, Seth. I should never have come. Goodbye. The finality in her words didn't strike him until she was gone. The immediate sense of sorrow seeped into his being, saturating his head and his heart. The pain was familiar. The feeling of loneliness. Of facing life without friends, without a partner. Alone again, terribly alone. Part of Seth longed to run after her, take her in his arms, and tell her that he'd do whatever was necessary to make things right between them. But he didn't. He couldn't. Because that would mean he'd have, he'd have to give her something he wasn't ready to relinquish, his grief. He was perfectly content to live with its foot in both worlds. The land of the living and the valley of death. Content to hold on to both women. Refusing to release one and give his heart to another. Fine. If that's what it took, so, then so be it. He loved Pamela first. She was his wife, the mother of his children. His heart. Now she was gone, and giving up the piano, 
was his testimonial their love. Reba had made it sound as though he were a candidate for therapy. It angered him, and rightly so. She had no room to talk, none whatsoever. This is the room I'm leaving for real quick. How are we doing, Stephen, Pamela? Good to see you all. It was over. She said as much on her way out the door. That was the way he wanted it. Excuse me, Emily muttered, standing in the middle of the kitchen and raised her expected eyes heavenward. Is anyone listening up there? Anyone? She didn't anticipate a response, but she would have appreciated one. We've got trouble down here. Real trouble. And I'm not talking about the gelatin not setting in my salad recipe either. She reached for the wooden spoon and, tucking the bowl under her arm, whipped the cake batter with frenzied effort. There'd be high tide warnings in Arizona before she'd agree to use an electric mixer. One didn't get the feel of batter or gauge consistency with any newfangled machine. In case no one's noticed, there's been a major screw up here, she said. Reba just walked out the door, and it doesn't look to me like there's going to be a piano player for the Christmas program either. She expelled her breath heavily. There's only so much one person can do. Once again, she glanced heavenward. Housekeeping and cooking are one thing, but sorting out people's lives, well, that's an area I prefer to leave the experts. The so-called experts seem to be on a coffee break. Wouldn't you know it? She was going to be left to deal with it. To deal with this mess on her own. And by heaven, someone was going to hear about it. I don't like this one bit, she muttered, setting the bowl back on the kitchen counter with a bang. I don't play the piano, she reminded the powers above. Don't expect me to step in and rescue the day. She clamped her mouth closed. You might have given me some warning, you know. Spraying the cake pans, she glanced toward, toward the other room and caught a glimpse of Sharon. I'm not entirely pleased with what's happened, with what's happening with the Palmers either. Not one bit. Forty years down the tubes. Something's got to be done, I say, and fast before it's too late. What's going on up there, anyway? She wiped her hands on a fresh towel from the drawer. If I didn't know better, I'd say the entire heavenly realm without choir practice. It seemed to her that what heaven really needed was a wake-up call. Well, she was just the one to give it. Harriet Foster had, okay, Harriet Foster had really been more miserable. Her jaw was wire closed and her left arm sported a thick white cast. Her niece had spent the better part of an hour with her, but Jane had, Jane had family and other commitments, okay, and couldn't be expected to hang around the hospital with a single woman. This certainly wasn't the way Harriet had intended to spend the holidays. Now she'd missed the Christmas program, and Reba would be left to find the last minute replacement for the piano. She closed her eyes and let her mind wander over a list of possibilities. It would be tough finding someone, someone almost impossible. She was irreplaceable and knew it. The entire Christmas Eve program would need to be canceled. All things are possible with God. Harriet's eyes flew open. She looked around to see who'd spoken, but no one was there. It was the medication, she decided. She was hearing voices. She'd heard others speak of such matters, and she scoffed. But this was very real. Drugs are no drugs. Trust. This time, her eyes were wide open. It almost definitely was a voice. One loud and clear, precise. There could be no dismissing it. Next time, I won't be so quick to judge others claiming to hear voices, she thought. 
exactly my point. Don't be so quick to judge others. Although it caused her considerable discomfort, Harriet twisted her head to look at look about a second time. It was uncanny, as if someone were standing in the room, reading and commenting on her thoughts. Someone who, here you are, the hospital door banged open. And Emily Merkel sauntered in the room. My, oh my, you've got yourself into a fine mess, haven't you? Harriet had never been fond of the, of the other woman, but she was grateful for a familiar face. Perhaps now the voice would fade, and she could bask in the glow of Wilbur's sympathy. Every part of her body ached, despite the pain medication. I only have a minute, Emily said, coming close to the hospital bed. The housekeeper sighed and took the straight strand of hair around her ear. I needed to escape, so I thought I'd drop in and visit my friend Harriet. She dropped herself down on a chair next to the bed. I take it Pastor Love was told you about Ruth's behavior. Or Ruth's brother, I'm sorry. <laughs> Ruth's brother? Harriet didn't know Ruth had a brother. Matters are in a tither at the house. I don't understand it either, she said. And Harriet wasn't so sure she was speaking to her. Her eyes held a faraway look. I suspect I'd be missed if I didn't get back soon. I'm sure you'll be feeling better before long. So don't you fret, she frowned. But then, the way matters are developing at the Webster's, I might be speaking too soon. The woman actually planned to leave. Swoop in, make a few candid comments, and then leave. And then leave? With her one good arm, Harriet reached out and grabbed the other woman's sleeve. Then stopped. If she was unable to speak, she reached for a tablet and pen. Ruth has a brother, she wrote quickly. Emily Merkel grinned from ear to ear. Lyle Fawcett. Harriet felt as if someone had hit her alongside of her head with a 2x4. Lyle was related to Ruth. They were brother and sister. No wonder Pastor Loveless had reacted the way he had. Her heart sank at the memory of what she'd said and done. Of the things she'd been thinking about Ruth. Don't worry about it. We all make mistakes, Emily said. It comes with having to deal with the human side of ourselves. A real nuisance, if you ask me. Frustrated because she couldn't speak, Harriet waved her good hand about, not even sure what it was she wanted to say. She wasn't sure if Emily was reading her thoughts or the expression in her eyes. As far as she was concerned, there had always been something peculiar about the Webster's housekeeper. You okay? Emily asked. The answer was far too complicated, so Harriet penned the words as well as could be expected. But when she glanced down at the tablet, she found the words, I feel like an old fool. She looked at the sheet again, certain there must be some mistake. Perhaps more was wrong with her than just a few broken bones. Emily chuckled and patted her hand. Don't worry, most of us are guilty of making assumptions now and again. It helps when we decide to resign as general manager of the universe. Personally, I don't need the headache. She laughed again and was gone. This time, the door didn't so much as open. Harriet was sure of it. The door didn't budge an inch, yet Emily had disappeared. One moment the Webster's housekeeper was there, and the next she was gone. Something very weird was going on. Harriet, thought, Harriet Foster pressed the button to call the nurse. She needed help. Clearly she had a reaction to the pain medication. Chapter 28. Sharon didn't see much of her husband the entire day. Her stroll in the park had helped her sort through her feelings about the divorce, and she'd been eager to share her thoughts with her husband, but he disappeared. And when he returned late in the afternoon, he didn't even offer an explanation of where he'd been 
for what he'd been doing. If it wasn't for the twins' enthusiasm for Christmas, dinner would have been a love affair. Seth has apparently Seth had apparently had a falling out with Reba, and looked about as cheerful as a cadaver. Jerry wasn't much better. Emily appeared to be in a very bad mood as well. If it hadn't been for Judge Jason, who rattled all my chatterboxes, Sharon would have suggested they all meet later for mass suicide. The evening wore on, and knowing that the following day, Christmas Eve, would be full, Sharon opted to retire early. When Jerry joined her shortly afterwards, she was already in bed, propped up against several pillows and reading. Excuse me. Wow. Where were you this afternoon, she asked, considering that they agreed that they agreed to divorce. She had no right to pay pry into his business, nor did he have any responsibility to report his whereabouts to her. You don't need to, you don't need to answer that, she added quickly, embarrassed. I don't. He sat on the end of the bed and untied his shoes. Unless you want to, of course. Every time she opened her mouth, she seemed to make it worse. I went to the movies. Oh. She would have enjoyed going with him, but it was senseless to admit as much. To think, he added. Oh, apparently her entire vocabulary had shrunk to words of one syllable. He twisted around and looked at her. Aren't you going to ask me what I was going over? Do you want to tell me? Clearly he did, or he wouldn't have prompted his question. I was remembering our first Christmas in San Francisco and comparing it to this year. The last one we're likely to spend together. I went for a walk and couldn't help wondering at what point we stopped being good to one another. I wish I knew, he mumbled. His right shoe landed with a clunk on the floor, then his left. He undressed and pulled back the covers on his side of the bed and slipped aside. Sharon continued to read, or pretend to read. Jerry lay on his back and stared at the ceiling. I had Chinese food for lunch. He never had been fond of Chinese, but it was her favorite. She had to bite her tongue to keep from reminding him that he complained every time she suggested Szechuan. It used to be, when they lived in San Francisco, that he'd take her to Chinatown. It was such a rare occasion when they could afford a meal out, and Jerry loved to treat her to a dinner he knew that she'd find special. She recalled that back then they could eat dinner for two for under five dollars. How times have changed. Funny how a dish of chow mein can bring back memories, Jerry added. We were happy then. The lump in her throat felt as large as grapefruit. Yeah, Jerry agreed. Giving up the pretense of reading, Sharon removed her reading glasses, set them on the end table, and turned off the lamp. The room went dark. The last several nights, they slept side by side, each as close to the edge of the mattress as they could manage. They acted as though touching each other would be would be akin to pulling the plug on a hand grenade and tossing it into a crowd. Sharon lay on her back now, too, staring blankly at the ceiling. Remember our first real Christmas tree, he asked unexpectedly. Of course. Clay had been barely two, and Neil had been a year old. Two babies within two and a, two and a half years. Living on one income, they had no money for luxury but tree ornaments. You strung popcorn and cranberries. Sharon laughed softly, which the boys probably ate. We ended up putting the tree inside the playpen, remember? She laughed again. Neil was so excited to open a gift. He ran around it three times and then tore into it like a Tasmanian devil. Soon Jerry was laughing too. Remember the time Pamela stuffed a beat up her nose and we had to take her to the ER? See that? That damn bee cost us a fortune and ruined my favorite necklace. 
They were silent for a while, each caught up in the rich texture of their ears together. Remember the time in church when some poor unsuspecting elderly woman sat down in the middle of a song? And I was holding clay on my hip, but somehow he got a hold of the woman's wig and started shaking it like a dog with a dead rat. You were mortified. And you kept trying to put it back on the woman's head, and her hands kept getting in the way. Didn't we change churches shortly after that? I don't remember, but I bet that woman did. Shara started laughing, and soon the tears ran unre unrestrainedly down her cheeks. For the memory, true, but mingled in with the laughter. Okay, down her cheeks. For the memory, true, but mingled in with the laughter was sadness and regret. Are you going to tell the boys? Jerry asked a moment later. I thought we should do it together. That would be best, he agreed. The silence was back, but neither of them rolled on their sides as they had, pre as they had, as they had previous nights. We had some really great years. Yes, she whispered, and to her horror, her voice cracked. Sharon? She didn't answer. Very, she dissolved in tears as she did. Damn it, Sharon, Jerry said, tossing aside the covers, as if he couldn't remove them fast enough. I don't want a divorce. I never did. But I was too damn proud to say so. Enough is enough. I loved you all these years, and I'm not going to stop now. Why died? Sharon sat up, clutching the covers to her breast. If you want to fight me on this, fine, but I'm telling you right now. Sharon ran her hand down his back. He jumped at the unexpectedness of her touch, then twisted around, moved in closer, and lowered his mouth to hers. The kiss was filled with frustration and anger and need, and it took Sharon by surprise. It had been so long since her husband had showed her any physical attention that she momentarily shied away. But Jerry wouldn't allow it. He deepened the kiss and, sighing, she wound her arms around his neck. Jerry, she whispered when he buried his face in the curve of her neck. Are you surprised the old man still got some life left in him? No. Oh, Jerry, I love you so much. I don't want the divorce either, but I can't go on living the way we have been. Me either, she heard. I felt a sigh, which came from deep in his chest. I've been a stubborn fool. Me too. I was the one who decided to sleep in the guest bedroom. But I knew that you didn't want that Panama Canal cruise. But I knew that you didn't want that Panama Canal cruise. I was being selfish and pig-headed. He raised his head just enough to meet her eyes. To her surprise, she found his beautiful dark eyes bright with unshed tears. Jerry, she whispered, and gently pressed her palm to his cheek. I'm so sorry. I didn't. I don't know why we let this happen. Tenderly, he held her hand to his face and kissed her fingers. There's never been anyone but you. I wouldn't know how to love anyone else. He reached down and unfastened the buttons to her pajama top. His hand shook with eagerness. Smiling to herself, Sharon completed the task for him and then looped her arms around his neck. Love me. I do, he murmured between deep, satisfying kisses. I do. He took, his own time, he took his own sweet time proving how much he did love her. The years fell away and it was as though they were young again. Their eagerness for one another as strong as it had been in the early years. Sometime later, Sharon lay in her husband's arms, her head cradled against his chest. Do you think anyone hurt us? I don't see how they could help it, he teased, and kissed the side of her face. You never could keep from making those little love noises. Thank heaven the twins are asleep. Sharon felt herself blush and groaned with embarrassment. What will Seth think of us? He'll think I'm the luckiest man alive, and he'll be right. Oh, Jerry, we've been such fools. No more. We're both going to have to work at this. 
It isn't a 50-50 competition with us. It's 100% and nothing less. Talking about when we were young and first married was a kick in the pants, I needed. If you want to cruise to the Orient, then that's what we'll do. Thank you, but I insist we go through the Panama Canal first. You've been talking about it for years. You deserve this, and I want to share the experience with you. He rubbed his jaw along the top of her head. There's no, there's no shopping in the canal, he reminded her. All survived. She could live without buying t-shirts and pottery, but she couldn't live without Jerry. Now, what was all this business about you having Chinese food for lunch? He was still and quiet. I'm not entirely sure myself. I guess in my own way, I was looking for a way to be close to you again. I had a miserable afternoon. The movies weren't nearly as enjoyable without you sitting there with me. I didn't even buy popcorn. Sharon smiled to herself. Why? What? While I'm at it, excuse me a second, I might as well confess that I don't dislike walnuts nearly as much as I made out. I prefer almonds and cashews, but a walnut isn't as repugnant to me as I let on. Then why? I had a bad game of golf and was sick and tired of sleeping alone. I overreacted, Sharon conceded. It was a bit dramatic of me to insist you cook your own meals. It taught me a lesson, Jerry said, and rubbed his hand down her bare arm. I won't complain again for a long time. Good thing. He chuckled and grew serious. If we decide to make a go of our marriage, we can't be tossing the option to divorce each other's faces again. It's too dangerous. Sharon agreed. Bringing up the subject, bringing up the subject had been like opening a Pandora's box, creating more problems than it solved. Once she'd started thinking of leaving Jerry, her mind had justified her decision. Everything he said or did was further evidence that their love was dead. I love you, Jerry Palmer. The tears were back in her voice, only this time they were evidence of her happiness. I love you too, Jerry Palmer, forever. Chapter 29 The twins were down, and Sharon and Jerry had headed for bed at a ridiculously early hour. And now Seth was left alone to deal with his thoughts. Try as he might, he couldn't forget the look of hurt and disillusionment on his face when she walked out the door. But what she asked of him was impossible. He hadn't touched a keyboard in four years. She seemed to believe he could pick up where he left off and play in public with less than 24-hour notice. Talk about unrealistic. Talk about absurd. She wasn't even making sense. He refused to think about it any longer. Having nothing better to do, Seth sat down in front of the television and reached for the remote control. He started to surf through the channels when Mrs. Merkel waltzed into the room with a feather duster. Don't pay me any mind, Mr. Webster, she said as she breezed past him. With so much to do tomorrow, I want to finish up what housework I can do this evening. I'll be out of your way before you know it. Seth leaned his head against the cushion and waited patiently while she dusted off the top of the television. He noticed that she stood directly in front of the screen and blocked view. Christmas Eve is almost upon us. My, oh my, how the days fly by. I don't suppose you've noticed how excited the twins are to be part of the church program. They're going to be the best little angels on God's green earth. On God's green earth. It would be a terrible letdown to them if the pageant had to be canceled. Seth frowned. He heard the censure in his housekeeper's voice, but didn't quite know if it was real or imagined. He did notice that it seemed to be ta taking her an inordinate amount of time to death. I feel so bad for Reba. I don't know how she'll ever find someone to play the piano on this late date. She turned and looked deliberately at him. Emily, stop. She hesitated. 
The feather duster clenched in one hand. Stop? You want me to stop dusting? Yes. His wishes were simple and direct. He suffered enough recriminations without his housekeeper adding to his guilt. I'll finish up myself later. As you wish. She left and said he'd a sigh of relief. He soon realized that he'd underestimated the woman the children called Mrs. Miracle. Before he could refocus his attention on the boob tube, Emily returned this time with a vacuum cleaner toe. Without a pause, she plugged it in and ran it across the carpet in front of him. With the determination of a woman intent on wiping out the plague of household dust in her lifetime, it amazed him that the carpet remained glued to the floorboard. Emily, he shouted. She turned off the vacuum and cast him a look of curiousness. You wanted something, Mr. Webster? How about some peace? He said between clenched teeth. Peace, she repeated, as though, though these were foreign these were a foreign word she couldn't translate. If you're looking for peace, then I suggest you search for for it within yourself. Oh no, he said, wagging his index finger. You aren't gonna start in with those crazy things of yours, not to me. Don't try to tell me silence isn't always golden, but it's sometimes just plain yellow. Oh, excellent, she said, her entire face brightening. But I never said that. Dear Abby did. Or perhaps it was Alan Anders. You know what I mean, he challenged. I'm in no mood to lock horns with the housekeeper. Arms akimbo, Mrs. Merkel stood squarely in front of him. She needs a piano player, and furthermore, she needs you almost as much as you, as you need her. Now, what are you going to do about it? He glared at the woman, wishing he had the courage to fire her on the spot. It was what she deserved for interfering in his personal affairs, but he wouldn't let. But he wouldn't last a week without her, and he knew it. If you let Reba down now, you'll regret it the rest of your life. She sounded so sure, so so self-confident. He hesitated as she closed in for the kill. Ask yourself what Powell would want you to do. Seth squeezed his eyes closed. Pamela, the sacrifice had been for her and her honor, a tribute to what they shared. It was a way of forever remembering his wife, a way of hanging on to his fears. The moment the words went through his mind, Seth recognized the truth of them. His vow over Pamela's grave had been a convenient excuse to offer Reba. Okay, the truth was that he was afraid. Only a fool would step in and play the piano for the Christmas pattern at this late date. Or someone with little to lose and lots to gain, the older woman said, cutting into his thoughts. Seth looked at Mrs. Merkel. Excuse me? I didn't say anything, she said. Pushed, I pushed the vacuum in the next room. I thought, are you going to help Reaver or not, she demanded. She planted one hand against her ample hip and glared at him. I don't know. Well, you'd better decide soon. You don't have all day, you know. Having had her say, she disappeared. At last, Seth had the peace and quiet he asked for, but it didn't help. He was more agitated now than he'd been with Emily waving a feather duster under his nose. Damn it all. There was no help for it. Pamela would have been the first person to encourage him to step in and help, for, for the children's sake, if not for any other reason. He wasn't happy about it, but he was also aware there would be no rest for him until he agreed. The decision made, he decided to phone Reba. Few things could have surprised him more than to find she wasn't at home. He waited until the answering machine clicked in and then said, with a complete lack of graciousness, All right, you win. I'll do it. Get the sheet music to me as soon as you can. Seth's accusations 
burned like branding irons in her mind as Reba sat in her car outside her sister's home. She never spoken to her sister about what happened that fateful night. She certainly hadn't given either John or her sister an opportunity to explain. It wasn't in, it wasn't in her to listen to their excuses, their justifications. The minute she found her sister with John, she blocked out all feelings for both of them, or she wanted to believe. Then she'd run into her sister at the toy store. What Seth had said was true. They were both in anguish, both hurting, both miserable. It was seeing Ellen for the first time, the niece she never held, never laughed with her cuddled, that had done it. For so many years, Reba had begrudged Vicky happiness at the cost of her own. Then she'd found Seth, a miracle, a gift from God. And now, once again, for the sake of perpetuating her resentment toward her sister, she was about to throw away everything she yearned for. Perhaps what Seth had said was true about the real reasons she agreed to marry John. Reba didn't want to examine his accusations too closely. Assigning blame was far too tiring. She was through with it all. It demanded a great deal of courage to walk up to the front door and ring the bell. The eternity passed before the porch light went on and the door opened. Doug stood on the other side. Reba? He held the screen door for her. I'd like to talk to Vicky, she explained. Her brother-in-law hesitated as if he weren't sure he could trust her. Is there a problem with your parents? She liked Doug and the way he acted to protect Vicky. No, the problem is between my sister and me. I need to talk to her. Doug, who is it? He glanced over his shoulder, waited a moment, and then announced, your sister. Vicky appeared from the hallway almost immediately. Ellen rode her hip, okay, Ellen rode her hip, dressed in Minnie Mouse pajamas, her wet hair combed back, her eyes filled with simple joy and laughter. It looked as though Doug were ready to stand guard over his wife and daughter, protect them both from her if necessary. Protect them both from her if necessary. Reba, Vicky's round dark eyes revealed her surprise. Could you give us a few minutes alone? She requested of her husband. She handed him the child and walked quietly into the living room. Reba followed. Now that she was here, now that they'd crossed the bridge and was and was facing the woman actively resented for four long years, she found all she could do was weep. The years of keeping her anger alive and feeding her resentment and pain left her feeling as though she were drowning in emotion. Tears welled in her eyes and spilled down her face, despite her almost frantic efforts to keep them at bay. Her throat felt raw. She'd wasted so much time feeding her pain when the person she hurt the most had been herself. For years, she'd been telling herself how much she hated Vicky. For years, she closed herself off from her family and friends. For years, she tabulated the wrongs committed against her. When all along she missed her sister desperately, her best friend, her own flesh and blood. When she found the courage to look toward Vicky, she found her sister sitting across from her. She was running unrestrainedly down her cheeks. She offered Reba a gentle smile and then bit into, lower, into her lower lip as if she were afraid to speak. Ellen is a beautiful little girl, Reba whispered. It was all the voice she had, and it came out choked and breathy. I named her after you, Ellen Louise. Vicky rubbed the heel of her hand down her cheeks and sniffed. Oh, Reba, I'm so sorry. So very sorry. She lowered her face. You have every reason to hate me. What I did was despicable. You don't know how I hated myself afterward. How? Don't, Reba said, her voice surprisingly strong. Vicky looked up to meet her eyes. I know you're sorry. It's unnecessary to say it again. The reason I've come is to apologize to you. My willingness to forgive you has hurt everyone. You, Mom, and Dad, and probably most of me. 
I came because because I need you to forgive me. Ricky stood, walked over to where Reba sat, and got down on her knees. With a soft cry of joy, Reba wrapped her arms around her sister, and the two hugged and openly wept. Chapter 30 Seth sat down at the church piano, poised his fingers over the yellow, yellow diver keyboard and hesitated. He had studied the music, and the notes rang loud and clear in his head long before his fingers struck the keys. The first song, Joy of the World, was one of his favorites, one he'd often played during the holidays because Pamela had loved it too. The last time he played the carol had been the Christmas before the accident, while his wife had sung solo, had sung solo in front of the church. He forced the memory from his mind and pressed his fingers upon the keys. Convinced his talent would be resting following a four-year sabbatical, he arrived two hours early to practice. The music flowed from his heart and from his soul. Joy, sorry, the music flowed from his heart and from his soul. Joy mingled with sadness, and to his wonder, the joy drowned out the sorrow. It was as though he'd sat and practiced hours every one of those days away from the piano. He wasn't the only one who noticed. Reba stepped out from behind the manger scene, paused, and stared. The joyous notes filled the church, resounding through the building, amplified until the music swelled and echoed like a chorus of angels. Oh, Seth, she whispered when he finished, awe in her voice. That was lovely. I don't know when I heard the carol play more beautifully. Her praise embarrassed him, and he fumbled with the sheet music. You'll be able to cue me, won't you? Of course. She walked to the far end of the stage. I'll be standing here. Emily and a couple of other volunteers are seeing the everything backstage. They'll get the children where they're supposed to be. The others are seeing their costumes and everything else backstage. My job is to cue you when the play and usher the actors and actresses on and off the stage. Seth ran his fingers up and down the scales, marveling at the sense of freedom and the joy he experienced. If not for practice reasons, he would have sat at the piano all day. What Reba had said about him letting go of his grief was true. He felt as if the shackles were lifted from his heart, and his, and, and his spirit soared in jubilation. I don't know how to thank you, Reba simply when he finished. He grinned. I'll think of something, he said, and then lowered his voice. Perfectly something that involved leather and lace. She smiled and lingered, then walked around the piano. Although they hadn't known each other long, he was beginning to understand and appreciate her. Something was on her mind. He also knew that she'd tell him in her own good time. My sister coming my sister's coming this evening, she said shyly. Seth noticed a slight tremble in her voice. What you said he at home. He regretted that now because he'd spoken in anger. It wasn't my place to berate you, and you were right. It was a prime example of the pot calling the kettle black. Vicky and I talked half the night. She didn't make any excuses for what had happened. But I know in my heart that John seduced her. She's changed so much, and she said I have to, too. Her eyes misted. Thank you for giving my sister back to me. He reached for her hand and raised it to his lips. Don't credit me with that. You're the one responsible. But I never would have gone to see her if it hadn't been for you. I was terribly afraid. It was a courageous thing to do after all this time. Ironically, going to see Vicky was what frightened me, she said. Losing you was. This last confession was followed by a noticeable gasp, as though she'd said more than she intended. You were the first man who didn't run and hide at my obvious emotional problems. Two wounded souls reaching out to help one another, he added. 
My guess is that you were brought to, that we were brought together for a specific purpose. The Christmas program, she suggested tentatively, moving to stand behind him. She loosened her arms around his neck. For the pageant, perhaps. But I had a distinct notion that we were meant to be together for a lifetime. You brought sunshine into my shade-filled shade existence. He wasn't a poet, but he didn't know, but he, and he didn't know the words to express all that was in his heart. Of one thing, he was confident. They were meant to be together. God had brought his brought this incredible woman into his life. He was grateful for the years he had with Pamela and the two children she'd born him. He loved her and always would, but the love he felt for his dead wife was different. Loving Reba took nothing away from Pamela. Having loved Pamela increased his ability to reveal his devotion to Reba. He brought his hands back on the keyboard. A smile came to his heart. Judd readjusted the pelt and sword and squared his shoulders as he raced off the stage and back to Emily's side. How'd we do, Jason asked, his face bright with happiness, his aluminum angel wings flapping behind him. Emily clasped her hands together. You were wonderful, both of you. She was going to miss these two munchkins. This happened every time she got involved with children. She'd go and leave behind a piece of her heart. Grandma and Grandpa in the front row, sitting next to Reba's sister and her family. So I saw Emily placed her hands over her shoulders and steered them back to where they, they could remove the angel costumes. I have something to tell you both, something important. She sat them down and then did so herself. This was the most difficult part. I'm afraid I'll be leaving shortly. Jason's face crumpled. No way. You can't, Judge cried, his eyes dark, his darkness imploring her. She'd expected the protest. Would have been offended if they hadn't put him in fight. The human side of her had deep concern for her employers. Now, now, it has to be this way, and really, it won't be so bad. The agency is sending over another housekeeper, but she's only temporary. Why can't you stay? Because the agency needs me elsewhere, she explained patiently. Tell them you won't go. We need you with us. I'm afraid I can't do that. But you didn't concern yourself because... But we want you, not some other housekeeper. They might send Mrs. Hampstead back. Judge Hunter back, holding his arms over his chest and pouting. Emily laughed softly. As I said, you won't be needing one for a long time since your dad's going to be marrying shortly. Oh dear, she done it again. Spilled the proverbial beans. This time she feared she was going to hear about it from the powers above. Dad's going to marry Reba? Jason's eyes grew as round as bowling balls. Wow, when? This will be our secret, all right? Emily said, doing her best to cover her small file. Both the children nodded. So you'll forget all about me, she said, wanting to reassure them. She'd be upset if they did, but that's besides the point. Never, John insisted. Is Reva going to have any babies? Jason asked. Oh dear, she got herself into a fine kettle of fish. I believe that is highly possible. Girls are boys. One of each, she said, and then pressed a finger to her lips. Remember, this is our little secret. Our lips are sealed. Jason patted my hip and closed his mouth. Judd did too. We're going to miss you, Judd said, blowing his head. Are you sure you have to go? Very sure. Soon the sound of applause was accused of the children back on stage for the final curtain call. Judd and Jason hurried out with their friends to sing a rousing version of We Wish You a Merry Christmas. Emily Merkel stood in the wings and smiled at her young charges. It was time to move on. Mission accomplished. And that is the end.
So we got through Mrs. Merkel, um, Merkel, Mrs. Miracle, and uh, that was fun. It was a fun holiday read, and we did. We also read from Dickens' Christmas Carol as well for the holiday. So next week, I decided I like doing this so much. And some of you like being here, so I've decided to continue with this. So I'm going to be I'm going to be downloading Ragosa um, Flight 401 because since we're you know, since we're out of the holidays at this point, I mean, we could go on with the holidays, but since for most people we're out of the holidays, uh, I, I want to stay with, uh, I want to go back to doing like um, paranormal themed books. And the Ghost of Flight 401 isn't only paranormal themed, it also, um, the, the guy that wrote the book really, really did his research and everything to write the book. And he, and he writes about doing that research. So you're going to see that, you know, you're going to see what, what, uh, what, a journalist should do with a story, you know, when they get a story like this. And he, you know, he talks to skeptics, he talks to believers, he talks to almost everybody you can think of to put this story together. And what's really cool about the story is that it was true. They were able to cross-verify the facts. And, and there's been a movie made, a couple movies made about this. And, you know, just, you know, I mean, you're getting reports from, from airline pilots, from stewardesses, from maintenance crews, you know, what happened with this airplane and, you know, what happened with these ghosts with this airplane. So I think you're going to enjoy this. I, I think it's going to be an interesting read. The only thing is it's a, it's a, it's a thick book, so it's going to take us a while. So it might take two or three months to get through, but um, you, you, you're you going to love it. Okay. You're going to love the story itself. Um, because it truly is, it truly, really, truly is some stuff that's going to make you not want to look in the mirror or look into something that's reflective or anything like that. Okay, but this it actually happened. This this plane um, crashed around New Year's in the Florida Everglades and, and it killed um, everybody in, in the cockpit. I think I believe everybody died in the cockpit. And what happens is the pilot and the the, the engineer and sometimes the co-pilot show up on different airplanes, but I'm not going to tell you how, how they show up, but, but they, but they do show up. So it's going to be an interesting book. And like I said, they, they talk with psychics. He talks with scientists. He talks with skeptics, the whole nine yards for that book. So anyway, um, we're going to start that ne next Sunday at 6 PM, same time as we're here tonight. And, uh, I, I, I think, you know, and maybe if you guys want to, you know, have a talk and we could talk about it afterwards, questions or whatever, just kind of talk about the book itself because it's kind of fun to do. Tomorrow night, um, Rory Schmidt is going to be here at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time. We're going to be talking about the history of voodoo in New Orleans. So that'll be tomorrow's show. We're back on schedule. And then we've got some really good guests booked for the, for, for the week. So uh, check those out. And uh, you see that little ticker thing at the bottom? I hate doing this, but uh, California Haunts is a nonprofit organization. And uh, everything comes out of my pocket for this team. So anything you see here, the mics, you know, the computers, everything, everything goes out of my pocket. And so it, it's really hard to make the bills sometime. So this is my PBS moment. So if you can find it in your heart to donate a little bit to us, that would be great. You can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, we have a Venmo account. Go into Venmo and uh, type in California Haunts will pop right up. Any amount would be really appreciated. Like I said, I pay for all this stuff. If something goes wrong with the computer, I have to pay for the repairs, uh, internet, whatever. You know, if any of this equipment breaks, I have to pay for the repairs or replace it. So any help would be great. 
All right. And uh, I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. It was great. And I will see you tomorrow for our regular show, California Haunts Radio. Have a good evening.